0: What he forgot to tell you, yesterday morning I was in Florida. And Dawn, the lady that set this up, says, well, you can have the 30th or the 31st about three weeks ago. I said, well, I'll take the 31st. I should have taken yesterday. (laughs) But I'm a Yankee by heart. Um, Covering this much history in such a short period of time, it's going to be an overview. But what I want you to take away from it, uh, two things. Uh, You have the greatest special operation forces in the world today. Bar none. Uh, It wasn't always that way. And I'll talk about that. I'll talk about leadership. And when you have the right people, the right training, the right equipment, and the will to use it, we do very, very well. When we don't, we fail, sometimes tragically. And we'll talk about that. I always understood you learn more from failure than you do success. And that is true in the case of special operations. Now, you're supposed to have a joke to start with, so I'll tell one of myself. As you saw, I traveled around the world, Germany, Panama, Canal Zone, different commands. And everywhere I go, I see these little outfits. Didn't make sense what they did. And I say, hey, what do you do? And the joke was, if I tell you what I do, I have to kill you. And so when I got down to special ops, I got the same pushback, but I came up with an answer for that. If I didn't write about it, you didn't do it. (laughs) Now, I'm serious about that. You probably knew more about the Army and the Navy, SEALs, Rangers, Green Berets, than you ever heard about Air Commandos. I never knew what they were, never heard of them. And so I learned very quickly, Air Force Special Operators only know their last mission. They don't know their history and heritage. History makes you smart, heritage makes you proud. And they have a proud heritage because they have a great foundation on which they grew from. Now, one of the takeaways tonight, if you've been in the military, conventional forces don't like anything special. Special forces don't like anything conventional. They they do it to themselves and that has all changed. I've watched it change in my 20 years there, especially since uh, uh, USOCOM was created. So without further ado, we're gonna move pretty quick. I'll try to stay away from acronyms, which you can cover so much ground. Here, Americanized specialized air power, every major command in the Air Force can say that because we provide something to the Air Force. In our case, we're 1% of the budget for the Air Force, 3% of the personnel. So the American people get good bang for our, for our buck we serve two masters the Air Force here, USOCOM here and it's all about money MFP4 is Air Force, mfp elevens Special Ops and how we do that if we need a new airplane, a new C-130 the Air Force buys it for it because that's what the Air Force does if we put a black box on it to do something special then USOCOM pays for it so that's how we work the monies now, people in the budget crunch only have one master usually we got two to worry about where we spend and do our money. Today, AFSOC has three wings, two groups, 15,000 people, and 200 aircraft. We're in 65 countries as I speak. Another statistic I found out that surprised me, since the end of the Vietnam War, 1975, except for two years since that time, we have been involved in some kind of operation around the world. That's a lot of activity. Down here is the key. Step ahead and chair it. If what we do, the conventional force can do it, they do not need us. So we've got to think out of the box all the time. How to do the job better, how to get it done quicker. Keep keep a low footprint, get in there and get up. We're we'll gonna only talk about one of these five. Humans are more important than hardware. We had an air park, you go out there and you leave. You've been here before, all the airplanes, all the equipment sitting around the museum, they're pieces of equipment that do nothing without the people. And that's what we're going to talk about. These are the attributes we actually look for. <clears throat> Any organization would love to have people with those kinds of um, attributes. We'll start with World War II. Two operations, one in Europe, one in the Pacific. We're more organized like we did in the Pacific, I'll spend a little more time on that. Our first operation to put an agent behind enemy lines in World War II in Europe, we used a Free French submarine. We weren't very successful. Office of Strategic Services, forerunners of the CIA, was our primary customer, and we do the same. One of the missions we have today is uh, uh, mobility. A special air mobility and we put a three B-17s together called a special flight section. And from that we grew into what became carpetbagger missions. These were to put teams behind enemy lines. So when we went to the, when it turned out to be normally, when we went across the channel, they would cut the, uh, the, uh, the Germans from coming to the coast with reinforcements. And we would train the marquee to rise up and fight and help us do that. And this is what the the missions were, Carpetbagger. At the height of these operations between October 43 and June of 44, we had uh, 69 aircraft. And out of those 69, we lost a third, 219 airmen. They were very dangerous missions. If you've been to Europe, missions were flown at less than 800 foot, most of them. And the Germans weren't stupid. They got their calendar out. We had to have light. We didn't have night vision goggles. So you got, when the moon was the right light, and we knew we were going on these dates. The Germans also knew we were going on those dates. So it was a cat and mouse game. When the war is over with, in Europe, we lose this tremendous capability we had. And you'll see this. After World War II, we lose it. After Korea, we build it up and lose it. And when we come to Vietnam, we do the same thing. We use B-17s, B-24s, and B-25s. Uh, B-24s, had the most range and payload, and that's why we used them. This is the actual paint scheme from North Africa. First operations, Operation Torch in '42. We got some airfields, and we started infilling, exfilling into the MED. Uh, not much known about that because um, this didn't take many losses. They were very successful. Uh, we know more about the Europeans because they fought uh, they had a harder enemy, enemy in the sense of uh, any aircraft uh, night fighters, And also a rudimentary type of radar. This is how we dispatch the agents through what they call the Joe-hole. The agents would go down. The agents are trained over here. Aircraft crews here, they didn't know each other in case they were captured. They couldn't talk about the missions. This is an actual photo of an agent going out. This is what our aircraft looked like in World War II. This is daylight. These aren't bombs. These are canisters of supplies. Once we found out how many partisans were available, the partisan uh, or the trainers would ask for equipment and we would send it over and we'd train them to fight, to rise up when we asked them to. And we did this also in the, uh, in the Pacific theater, but more uh, in the uh, European theater. You'll notice they're painted glossy back, black. There's no weapons except the tail. It has a bubble nose. Our current, what we call talons, combat talons, all have the bubble-shaped nose. And uh, you see these two gentlemen here, they were called dispatchers. Today we call them loadmasters because they dispatched the people. Uh, They had uh, shields on the cowling so the night fighters couldn't find them. And this little gadget up here is a receiver. On the ground, they had a suitcase size, and it was Eureka on the ground, Rebecca up there. The only other aircraft in the Army Air Corps that had it were the pathfinders going into Normandy. But what that did, it put out a cone of silence. They had an instrument in the cockpit, had a wavy line. When the line got straight, they knew they could drop to the partisans. To be even closer, because they didn't have GPS, what they did, they had an S-phone, which is like a um, telephone operator used to have. And then when they could speak to the partisans at that time, they were even closer. This is how we did this operation. Now, innovative thinking. We always had to find a way to do the job. We were putting 1,000 plane raids into Germany, into Czechoslovakia. And out of those raids, we would have losses of 50 or 60 B-17s. That's 10 men to a crew, 500, 600 men. They were acceptable losses in World War II, but they didn't all die. Many parachuted behind enemy lines, in the Balkans especially, because that's the way we went out. And the partisans would gather them and say, hey, we, we can't take care of these. So Army Air Corps said, well, we got nothing to go get them. So the 801st Bomb Group, which was the special operators, they added some C-47s so they could la- land and take take uh, take the uh, take these prisoners, who would have been prisoners, back out, bring supplies in to the partisans. Now, leadership, the two lieutenant colonels in charge of squadrons wouldn't let the crews fly until they flew the mission. What do I mean by that? They wanted to know how dangerous the mission was wherever they were going to that part of Europe. And after they came back, then the crews could go. Those men became the leaders during Korea. The men we brought into Special Ops in Korea became the leaders in Vietnam. The leaders that grew up in Vietnam became the leaders in the first Gulf War. You'll see this throughout our heritage, that men pick up this difference and, and move on to carry on. Hap Arnold, many considered the father of the Air Force, came up with the idea of the way we would be organized today as a compo- composite uh, force. He actually named them the Air Commandos. So the British would understand what we were going to bring to the fight. And the mission was to keep the Japanese from getting into India. Why? There's a million Japanese soldiers in China, and we're feeding them and arming the Chinese army out of India. If the Japanese take India, they're going to cut off that surprise, and a million Japanese soldiers are going to be against us. So the British went in behind Japanese lines in 43, took 3,000 men, lost a third, came back out, but it was the first successful operation against the Japanese by the British. Ward, Ward Wingate did this. So the next year, Ward goes to, uh, the, to, uh, the War Department there in England. They come to the United States and say, hey, we need some help. And so this is how we get involved to go back in. It's called Operation Thursday, March 1944. These are the two gentlemen that carried it off. This is Phil Cochran and Johnny Allison. Phil passed away in 79. John just passed away a couple of years ago. He got out of the military. John did too, but he got in the reserves, became a two-star general. I show this picture because one of the few you'll ever see him with hats on. They just, they were fighter pilots. And uh, just to give you about leadership again, they were friends. They knew each other. Johnny Allison flew with the Flying Tigers. He was an ace. Been shot down three times. They go to Arnold one at a time. They're back in the States. Arnold said, I want to give you this great mission. Take some light airplanes and help the British. And they said, thank you, sir. Give me a fighter flying fight." And then Phil got the same message. And he said, I'm going to make you co commanders go out and do this mission. Neither one of them wanted to do it. So while they're doing this, they both think that John outranks Phil. So John says, I'll be the commander. Phil says, find the vice commander. They find out very shortly after, not the case. Phil outranks him. And they switch roles. <laughs> the reason I tell you that, it wasn't important. You'll notice nothing matches. It's what was utility they could take to do this mission. This is a guy we're going to work for, Ord Wingate, who had lost a third of his men. So any support he gets, he's going to be very, very excited to have. This is in India. These are P fifty ones. This is a B twenty five H model seventy five millimeter Canon nose twelve fifty cal machine guns. Some people say the first gunship. This is a U uh, excuse me U sixty four Norseman back there. This is some of the Chindits. Getting on, the maintainers, the, main, uh, the men maintained the aircraft, put the stripes on. There were five sections. They wanted the Japanese to know we were a special unit. And they developed is this unofficial emblem, white circle and a question mark. The second air commandos came up with exclamation point in a circle. <laughs> but they never got any lineage and honors for this because they're a provisional unit until after the operation which is in March, April, to become official Air Force. Organization. What that? Why they did that, they couldn't get any resupplies, couldn't get any medals, couldn't get any replacements. And they were so successful what they did that the Air, Army Air Corps decided to create two more units, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, which takes the lineage back to the 1st Air Commando wing at Hurlburt, the 352nd group in England, and the 353rd on Okinawa. This give new meaning, get your ass on the airplane. They walked in before, lost a third of the men. Now they're going to air land, they're going to use gliders and the most sophisticated classified weapon system we had in World War II in the Army Air Corps. This is where the air commando hat comes from, the, the bush hat of the Australians. U-64 glider, uh, U-60, U-64 is towing a glider. We took Waco gliders. Now, the morale of the troops went way up. When uh, L1, we took L1s and L5s, took a hundred of them. All the uh, pilots were dual-rolled as maintainers. Very small force: 350 uh, aircraft, 550 men. They were told, "If you're wounded, we'll leave you side of the road. Hope some good guys find you. The first time they went in, and if you're wounded too, we'll ever shoot you because we can't take it. Now, within hours, they can be back in a hospital." So the chindits, and that's what they called them. It's a mystical beef that guards the Burmese temples. It was looks like a lion with wings, air and ground working together joint. Uh, innovative. This is uh, the Bush Hat. They would take the light aircraft, go out to the patrols, they rig these gadgets and non-perishables and drop it to 'em. This was we were doing this in 1944. There's two posts here with the glider would land, discharge, put you wounded on. C-47 would catch it on this hook, did not have to land. We were doing that in 1944. Uh, eventually this became the All-American and then into the, uh, the Re- Fulton recovery system. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, high tech. Twelve in the War Department, he took six, he got six. Laminated plywood for rotors. Bailey wire and canvas. April of '44 did the first successful seesaw operation. A guy by the name of Carter Harmon was the pilot that went and rescued people behind Japanese lines. But that was equivalent to stealth back then. Most people think of Korea, but that's not true. This is an artist's rendition. Of Operation Thursday, put 67 gliders behind Japanese lines to build an airfield to bring supplies in. And the Japanese never recovered from this. They never got into India. And after this operation, they started, we started, the uh, the British started moving back, taking Indonesia back. Now, significance of this, I used to spend two hours just on this operation, but Cochrane and Allison went back to England. Lessons learned using gliders, just one example. They started out pulling two gliders. The first eight aircraft lost a glider. So they said, one glider, one C-47. That kind of information went back to Eisenhower's headquarters in England. This is a March of 44. What happens in June of 44, I'm convinced, saved hundreds if not thousands of Allied lives by operating like that. The gentleman you see here, the uh, British guy, uh, ends up being uh, the individual who creates the SAS for the British, their special air service. Uh, Those who know the Doolittle Raiders, uh, I think his name is Richard Cole, was Doolittle's co-pilot, was with the Air Commandos. He stayed in the theater, and he was in charge of their airlift force. Now, after World War II, this capability we had in Europe, in the Pacific, we lose it. Army Air Corps uh, disbands. We know we want to be an Air Force, and we're working on that. But this guy here is named Ed Lansdale. He brings, brings psychological operations to the the Air Force, in special ops. He's in the Philippines. Our first combat after World War II is in the Philippines fighting the folks that uh, at that time we called them communists. Today we're fighting the same folks we call them insurgents. This gentleman here was a senator, Philippine senator, became vice president. Then he became the president, and he took advice. And how we did this is this combat aviation foreign internal defense to teach others how to do these missions so we don't have to go there. We're the trainers. I show this because this is Ed Lansdale. When that gentleman became president, he's just sitting in the audience. These are all Filipinos because it's their country. After they defeat the Hawks, and that's what they were called, in the late 40s, mid, early 50s, these people are the ones that go to Vietnam to start helping the French. That's how the connection with special ops, we go into Vietnam. This is my former boss. He was in the Pacific Theater in the early 90s uh, in the war against the insurgents down there. We were, we were literally fighting the grandchildren, great-grandchildren of the ones we fought right after World War II, and that's the, president, uh, the uh, commander of the uh, Filipino Army. And again, how we did this, we lent them the equipment. This is their symbol, and they took all the credit and did all the heavy lifting. Unlike Vietnam, when we took over the fighting, we did not do this here. This gentleman here is a young Captain Heine Adderholt, retired as a one-star. He's been in special operations since the end of World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and after Vietnam, uh, he retired. His deputy was Dick who who is retired in my area, is now president of the Air Commando Association. We used B-26s for infill, exfill, painted them black like that. Other things were going on in the world. You can see the Air Force wings here. But this is a French insignia. They didn't, the French didn't have the equipment we did, so we'd loan it to them, classified, take them down, take all U.S. markings off, let the uh, French fly them, mainly Taiwanese pilots, free, uh, what they call free China pilots. They would borrow them for 90 days, bring them back to the Philippines, put U.S. markings on, and give them back to us. This here you can't read is 322nd Troop Squadron Special. This is a C-54, high tech, back in the 50s. And uh, we're on Okinawa. Why are we in Okinawa? The Army and Navy Special Forces are there. And now the CIA. The follow-on from the OSS becomes the CIA. And we're there for infill, exfill, just like we did in World War II. We actually used B-29s. Painted them black, took the guns off, so we could infill, exfill, and resupply. Been around a B-29, big airplane. We also had helicopters. Now, the difference in the H-19 From rescue, rescue had rescue on the side. We thought it would be a great place to park eyes. Rescue said, no, 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 they shoot at you guys. Rescue did not go out at night. They had no different equipment than we did, and they were called, we called them SAM missions, special air. During the day, we would take generals around, we would do this, do that, and then at night, we would go out and do the clandestine stuff using the same equipment. But, uh, but rescue didn't go out at night. The Korean War ends, and during Korea, he got away from air commandos, and they called them Air Resupply and Communications Wing. We had three of them, the 580th, 581st, 582nd. 581st went to Korea. There were to be a number of those created, but if you remember the 50s after Korea, Eisenhower's elected president, and then we rely on nuclear weapons. And this has a big impact on how we get involved in Vietnam, because relying on nuclear weapons, the Navy had submarines to launch nukes. We had B-52s and others, too. And the Army had a cannon they put on a railroad car. So it's not very helpful. The Army was looking for a mission, and they come up with this counterinsurgency. And as a result of that, down at Hurlburt Field, Benjamin King was called by Curtis LeMay. Famous Curtis LeMay, flying bombers is as important flying fighters is fun. They set it up. He was a fighter guy, King was. And he set up the air commandos. And in the unit that they prepared to deploy to Vietnam, the first deployment was to Mali, the second to Panama, the third to, to Benoit, and we stayed there from 61, 62 Year We were the first combat unit there. Many of the pilots could fly five different aircraft they were qualified in. And they had over 9,000 hours, flying hours, total as a unit, with no accidents. Uh, throwing it, they took and uh, interviewed 3,000 people to get 350. This is what wood, what wood, uh, the uh, era of the aircraft, the U-10 Beaver. You'll notice the high wing of the L-1s and L-5, so we can get into little fields. The C-47 cargo gunship, the T-28 Trojan, the trainer. We turned it into a fighter bomber, and the B-26. You couldn't have any offensive went became an AO-26, observation attack. A-1E Sky Raider. we had the H model and then the E model, the two-seater. Uh, the Navy was getting rid of them. The Air Force said, we don't want any, we're going higher and faster. And the Air Commando said, hey, we'll take some of them. Hobo was the call sign. If you saw the movie, We Were Soldiers once, when they, when they had the broken arrow and the planes all joined the battle to help uh, stem the tide of the North Vietnamese. There was one on the tail back here had the symbol of the 1st Special Operations Squadron in 1965. We participated in that. In 1966, Bernie Fisher, first Air Force Medal of Honor recipient, uh, was flying in 1966 to earn. Now, I say the first. Prior to Vietnam, we used the Army uh, Medal of Honor. So that was the first. Out of Vietnam, five members belonging to uh, Air Force Special Operations Units earned the Medal of Honor. This is what we were doing, foreign internal offense, We were training others to take care of themselves. Uh, leaflets were real big using uh, all the different aircraft we had. This is what your well-dressed air commando looked like, 1966. We had four wings, 18 squadrons, 9,000, 10,000 people into Vietnam, but scattered all over. This is a young Jerry Klingerman. He was a trainer. This was a class he had. Jerry saw my presentation and he gave me this picture. Out of this class, this is how many were left. You have to remember, they're fighting for their homeland. But that's what we do. That's what we, that's what we bring to the fight. We don't want to do the fighting. We'll teach you at your request to do this. This was the largest glider ever produced. Um, was, to, um, was for the uh, invasion of Japan. And they, up here at Wright-Pattern, said, well, let's put some papalos on it. became a 123. Good infill, exfill. 01 with no markings on it for the secret war in Laos. Uh call sign was butterfly. Never heard of it. What we heard about was the Ravens. It was all officers, the Ravens. But before, they were flown by enlisted. Heine Adderhold had set it up. And when they, uh, the, uh, the uh, Air Force leadership said, well, What are you doing there? And they said, well, you don't have to have a college degree to have a tail dragger. They were all enlisted. He got that from Cochran and Allison. And the Air Force put a stop to it, said we're going to put officers in there, got a bunch of lieutenants, captains, started school at Holbert. No change in mission, no change in success. The last man to trade it over was a sergeant named Charlie Jones. He's passed away. He was the last one to turn his territory over to the officers, and they gave him the uh, call sign of Raven 1. That's what they thought of the enlisted. But the enlisted call sign was Butterfly. Black Maria is here at the museum when the first Gulf War kicked off. They were afraid they might lose her, so they brought her up here to the museum. I show this to real civilians, 123, uh, the 130, 119, C-47, O-2, O-V-10, uh, T20, uh, eight, yeah, T-28, the A-1E, the U-10, the beginnings of the Huey helicopter, and the only jet aircraft SOF has ever used is the A-37. Okay. Until we received the CV-22 in 06, SOF has never had an aircraft designed to do a SOF mission. We've modified everything through all the conflicts. Very creative. C-47, is what your well, well-dressed gunship crew looked like. Ten men to a crew. Then we went to the 119s. Stinger and Shadow were the call signs. Uh, Spectre and Spooky were for the 47s. And then we went to uh, the 130s. That's an A model. That's in Thailand, and it was called Spooky. Also, the latest version we're going now have four versions of the gunship, and the latest one will be called Ghost Rider, because the unit during Vietnam adopted that. I think a country western song, Ghost Riders in the Sky, and that's where it comes. 105 mm cannon. We now have 30-millimeter, a precision strike package that can be rolled on, rolled off, Hellfire missiles, 30-millimeter, miss, missiles, 25-millimeter, 40-millimeter, whatever's out there, we can put it on it. We're eventually going to have 37 gunships. They're in such great demand. This is called heavy chain. This has started the modification of the infill, exfill aircraft We use the MC-130s. Uh, very dynamic, uh, dynamic. We have 25 squadrons as I said, with other 200 aircraft. We have run out of soft numbers for our squadrons. I hate to admit this, but we're using fighter unit designations now. Nothing personal against fighter pilots. Again, a capability to refuel and use helicopters from the Hueys to the H-3, the H-H-3, the H-53, and to the MH-53, which just came out of the inventory. First time in our history, We do not have any heavily of helicopters. Now, many people thought we got the CV-22s to replace the helicopters. No. We replaced the Talon-1, the original MC-130s. M stands for, they say, multi-role or modified. This is a 53, $43 million aircraft. We converted 72 of them. We actually wore them all out. We just were in combat for so long. These are some of the Sante Raiders. And by 1970, we had such a capability that we did the Sante Raid. Hit a POW camp 23 miles northwest of Hanoi. Using, working with conventional uh, 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 forces, air forces, we took a team in there. Prior to going on this mission in November 70, we practiced it 83 times before we went. Got in, no POWs there, got out. Everybody comes home, some sprains, whatever. But that's how effective we were. I asked and asked, who picked Sante? Just a sidebar. I could tell you a hundred sidebars. President Nixon did. All the leaders, all the army leaders, all the commanders said, Nixon picked it, da, da, da. I was reading a book I found for 50 cents called The First Domino about Vietnam. When he was vice president, when Nixon was vice president, he toured North Vietnam. He visited a refugee camp called Sante. I could never prove that he picked it for that, but I've got to believe if you've been to a restaurant and it's pretty good, you're going to go back. And he had a choice of three locations, but he picked Sante. Then in 1975, we're starting to lose our capability. We have the uh, Mayaguez. Some bad guys took it. We put some Marines on an island. They never got off. Fifteen or killed. Three are left behind. Two squadron helicopters come in, rescue, special ops, they're shot up so bad. At the end of it, they can't even fly anymore. they both squadrons, what they call the NIF. They're not effective anymore. 1975. And then by 1980, we fail in Desert One. This mission was not practiced because there was no time to practice. You had to get in there and try to get these guys back. And uh, the SEALs found uh, found the, the, uh, the crew was released someplace else. We dropped a Blue 82 bomb on the Marines. The guys on the ground could not talk to the helicopters. There were no... A forward air control or gunship's available. And that's what they said. But they were available. They just weren't used. Really screwed up operation. 1980 Desert One was not practiced once in total. Total failure. And from 1980, we start building our forces back up. Now, this is uh, Jump Myers and uh, Bernie Fisher. Uh, Bernie landed on a a air. Special force of camp was overrun, picked up, Jump Myers, and that's how he earned the Medal of Honor. This is the only known photo of any member of any service doing the deed to earn the Medal of Honor. 123, you can see two little stick men here. They're running. They're combat controllers. And, uh, uh, burn, uh, yeah, Joe Jackson said in his presentation, they gave Olympic medals those boys would have won that day. They're turning around, aircraft you see been shot down, enemy owns it, they're shooting at him, leans, fires an RPG round into the aircraft, doesn't go off, he gets back, said, i survived. Lady in the back said, why would you do that? When he answered questions, she said, well, I was there, someone had to do it. She said, no. Why would you do that knowing your sense of survival is zero? He thought for a minute, gave a great answer I give the young people when I give them towards the air park at that aircraft, the 123. And the answer was, he said, well, my value system, if you know what the right thing to do is and don't, that's a sin. And that satisfied her. John Leventer was the only enlisted at that time, earned the Medal of Honor on a gunship. He saved the gunship. He was wounded through the, uh, they were struck, and he threw the um, he threw the uh, flare that he was get ready to ignite out the aircraft. Uh, later on, um, Pitsenbarger, rescue man, was upgraded from Air, Cro- Air Force Cross to a Medal of Honor. But at the time, he was the only one. And then the motto, Anywhere, any any Anytime, when they were practicing with the British in the Chindits, they had an accident early on. And the Americans were afraid they had killed some British soldiers that the British wouldn't do it. But that night they got a letter from the commander, and he told them we've got to keep working together as a team, whatever. And the last line said, Be, be sure, we will go with you, any place, anywhere, anytime. This is for the Desert One operation. These are the sea stallions that the Navy provided to us. This guy here is John Carney. Sped up the special tactics, which is made up combat controllers, pararescue men, and combat weather. Uh, he's a guy that laid the lights behind into Iran, and so when the planes came in, he hit a switch, showed where the runway was, and that's where they landed, and that's where they had it. Uh, Desert One was a location. Rice Bowl was the overall, and Eagle Claw was the Air Force portion. Everyone agrees that if it was going to go wrong, it was better to go wrong here. It would just got worse as it went on. They had to have the hide site. Out of this operation comes a requirement for the CV-22, and that's we've all seen that famous photo. This is where our losses: there, five airmen, three marines, and this is memorial at Hurlburt Field. We started growing, taking care of special ops. We created 23rd Air Force. We went into Grenada, pretty good operation. Show this to people to show that the, uh, the gunships could take out these equipment but leave the shrubbery alone in the back. Very surgical type operation. And these were our customers so we went down there and rescued out of there. Congress, for the first time in our history, told the military how to organize themselves. Never dreamed they'd have to. USOCOM stood up in April of 1987. 23rd Air Force moves to Hurlburt Field in uh, that summer. And then we go into Panama. For just cause, all of our forces are there. And in May 1990, we established new major command. This are elements. This represents the Army Air Corps, 15th Air Force because of going into uh, Operation Torch, and the K-5 dagger of the British because the British taught us everything we know about special ops. All Air Force emblems have to be Air Force colors. We have an exception because uh, we do everything at night, and that's why it's black. Again, Desert, uh, the uh, first Gulf War. Uh, this is an EC. You can tell by here. Our Guard brethren had the first mission uh, of uh, putting Voice of America behind enemy lines. Task Force Normandy. Our 53s could find radar sites the first night of the war, and the Apaches couldn't find them. But they had Hellfire missile. All oh, we had a 50 cal. Put the teams together. We let them in. They hit the radar sites. They were expecting 10% losses the first night in the air. We lost one aircraft. Very successful operation. Put together in less than 60 days. Again, a famous picture, Devon Jones, Navy, uh, Airman, Special Tactics Guy, uh, Daylight, uh, Tom Trast is the commander. He's a two-star general now. As this is happening, a uh, enemy truck is coming along here, an A-10 is coming here, takes out the enemy, and we rescue Devon Jones. What fascinates me that the guy inside had the quietness to take that picture. Again, psychological operations saved a lot of lives. We took all of our equipment with us around the world to for this. I got to Hurlburt March of '91. There was no aircraft on the flight line, none. Largest conventional weapon at that time, Blue 82. Conventional air forces in Vietnam dropped 250 of them. We dropped 11 during the first Gulf War. It looks like a tactical newt. I heard the voice of the British who was observing this operation, not knowing what we were going to do. They just said, watch. When it went off, in a British accent, which I can't repeat, he said, the Yanks just nuked them. And uh, they said, no, it was conventional. But it was called a daisy cutter, 15-foot prong here, who had cleared the jungle for two helicopters to get into. Again, the single greatest loss was Spirit 03, a gunship, the Battle of Kofji. The anniversary is today. Lost a crew of 14. Other things were going on in the world. Uh, the 353rd, people were evacuated out. Majority of the families, they could go anywhere they wanted. Most of them chose to go to Homestead. Everybody remember what happened two years later? Hurricane Andrews took them out again. These families lost everything twice. But this unit never stopped functioning. Made every commitment, whatever it was doing through TDY and working around such things. And they finally got a home on Okinawa. Largest combat after, since Vietnam at this time. This is Mogadishu, Black Hawk down, um, Wilkerson fails and Bray Air Force Cross, two Silver sergeants. first enlisted Air Force Cross since Vietnam. He gave me this photograph. This is the alleyway where he ran back and forth getting supplies to take care of the wounded. Bad guys just just fired down there like an alley, uh, with bullets going. His should have been an Air, I mean a Medal of Honor, in my opinion. We went into Haiti. Our forces went in there, led by the 53s. We didn't have to. This is Ron Brown's plane that crashed. We were the only ones who could get up there because of the weather. Our equipment. We got up there. It was it was a rescue turned into recovery. None survived. A few days later, this task force that was put together to do this goes to Africa to do a NEO, bring um, uh, uh, about 1,300 Americans out of a foreign country. We could never have done that if we hadn't been organized to where we are. This is the crew of the 53. And the crew of the uh, 60 helicopter that rescued the F-117 pilot, and the F-16 pilot. Remember the famous quote by the Serb, we got your airplane, we got your radio, we got this, we got that. And the ambassador said, you don't have an American. Again, uh, in the Balkans, a lot of activity there. All of our forces, a lot of leaflets. And this is uh, Vietnam. The ambassador is a former POW who had been tortured. He's now the ambassador. They had terrible flooding. He calls up and said, we need help. We go there and build some really good relationships with people in the area. This is your well-dressed Mongolian guard. When 9-11 hit, we had aircraft all around the world. We didn't have to ask the State Department to get permission. We just went and said, we need to be able to put our airplanes here. We built up such good relationships. We were able to do that. Uh, Humanitarian, we're always involved in humanitarian movement. And if we're not on the ground, our gunships are protecting the UN forces that are doing it. This uh, gentleman is the first sergeant at Hurlbert. This is the famous shot from 9-11. We had five helicopters, 53s in the Carolinas. They went north to Washington with the Pentagon and up to uh, the, the uh, Twin Towers to help them out. This is Bart Decker. Remember, World War II, what do we use? We used horses you got to use what the other guy has. little story about um, uh, Bart. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the story of the angel of death. Well, anyway, we had a female navigator on a gunship, and she's setting up for go around. Bart's the radio operator talking to the Afghan general there, and he stops and looks. And he said, who's that? And they, he said, that's a navigator. He said, but that's a woman. I said, yeah. So he calls down to the bad guys who they, he had communication with them said, hey, the Americans think so, le- so little of you, they're sending their women. <laughs> and they could hear her talking, and he, he clued to mic. He could hear them talking, but he didn't, uh, they couldn't understand. Some of them actually did surrender because he said, you wouldn't send your women to fight, and it's a different culture. Uh, her was a lieutenant uh, black at the time. Again, some countries sent troops. Other countries sent equipment. But again, the coalition is the only way to do business. There are seven countries represented here. This gentleman here is from Switzerland, and he introduced himself to me in a presentation. This is Bob Steele, American. Seven countries. Again, coalition. That's the way we do this. We can't do it by ourselves. Again, the maintainers uh, spent two nights under fire recovering a $43 million aircraft. This is a Marine heavy lift helicopter that hauled it out for us. This guy's tech sergeant failure, uh, Prince Harry. This is the first time Prince Harry was there. They found out right after this he was there. They pulled him out. He just went back and just came home again. Again, Operation Endicondia. Cunningham and Chapman were the two we lost there. Uh, we I show this to talk about going to the top of the world. No matter where they are, to below sea level, we have the capability to go in and get them. This is a famous photo of them watching the takedown of Ben Laden. This is uh, General Webb who just received a second star. And uh, you can see it's live going on now. Again, the world is uh, is uh, is uh, divided, and we support all these areas. And we used to just be a supporting command. Now we're a supported command. So people have to support us. Our families used to have to wait week, ten days, before we would come back from overseas. We fixed all that and then come back within two days now and land at Heroburg or Eglin Air Force bases. Again, Gen, uh, Colonel Engel took over Cannon Air Force Base. Uh, he's now a two-star. He just got his second star. So we have two bases now, Hurlburt and Cannon. The MH-53s were retired. We have one here. Goes back to the Sante raid. This goes back to 1975, uh, the Mayaguez operation. Again, the CB-22s, new aircraft. We've just got our whole almost our whole complement They've been deployed, the RPAs, the MQ-1s, MQ-9s, and then our non-standard aviation. Uh, We have the U-28As. We have the M-28s, which is a Polish called the Skytruck twin engine. We have the PC-12s, and we also have a Dornier 328, which is a twin engine cargo aircraft uh, German. Our uh, brethren at the 193rd uh, provide great support for us. They're the electronic Countermeasures, the uh, calm guys. Six SOS, foreign internal defense. We fly aircraft from other countries. Our pilots have to learn how to fly because they can't afford any other equipment. We have to work with their equipment. Very effective. My best Latin, stalk your enemy. We do that very well. We didn't have this capability before. In Haiti, this was the control tower. Okay. Uh, these are combat controllers, 13,000 Americans were gotten out, 1,600 missions, 4 million pounds of cargo on one runway, no accidents or incidents, great Americans. And then, of course, we were in Japan, we were, some, we were the first forces in to help them. Uh, they said they couldn't get in this particular airfield. Our combat controllers went in and said, yeah, it's usable. The commander made a decision. We flew in. The Japanese said, well, if they can get in, we can get in. Saved a lot of time energy. This is what we bring to the fight. We're the point of the spear. But we're not manned or equipped to stay there a long time. We do this and then Big Blue has to come in and take over these kinds of operations. And I'd like to close tonight with making the supreme sacrifice. Since 9-11, we've lost 31. 26 enlisted, 5 officer. And among the enlisted was one female, I think, of special forces, uh, that's the all, only female that we've suffered a loss.